Um, I have a question, and it is this. When have you found that there's been a mismatch with your expectations and the reality of something? Right? When have you found what you've expected going into something has been radically different to the reality? Maybe for you, like many times for me, it had to do with food. When the reality of food was so different to... Oh, something went wrong with that slide. You're supposed to see on the right the actual picture of what the TV dinner looked like, which is like this brown slop with one piece of meat in it. Anyway, what about drink? When you've made yourself a hot chocolate. Or maybe for you, it's something fun. You've expected one thing and it's turned out to be something different. Your Friday nights don't look anything like the expectations. Or maybe it's having to do with new experiences. Oh, come on. Can we... You know what's mucking up for us? It's the, the, the fact that we're using ProPresenter. It's like stuffing up my slides. So all my jokes are like falling dead. What you're supposed to see is the person trying to do the hair thing and it's like this big flop on her face. Okay. Um, or perhaps it has to do with how you look. Or maybe you're thinking, we're getting a new teacher at school. He's going to be hot. <laughs> or maybe for you, it's a potential romance. Okay, this is probably not going to work. Oh, it's not going to work. I'm so devastated. Who are our tech guys? Come on. No more pro presenter, please. Um, okay, what the guy tells me he likes anime, um, what I imagine he looks like, and you can probably picture what he actually looks like. Nothing like that. All right, um, I asked you these questions because I want to ask you, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, what part of being a Christian do you most feel there's a difference between expectation and reality? What part of being a follower of Jesus do you most feel that there's a difference between expectation and reality? Because chances are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you felt that at some point. Well, we're in a chapter of the Bible a very, very key chapter of the Bible where Russell's just read for us. And we're actually going to learn through a lot of the experiences of the two main characters here, Paul and Barnabas. And what we're going to learn, amongst other things, is what to expect. What to expect so that we won't have a different picture of expectation and reality as followers of Jesus. And I don't just mean what to expect in terms of what we do as Christians in our mission, in our ministry, to others and the world. There's certainly most of that. But also in this chapter, it's what to expect in general as a follower of Jesus. What ought we to expect? So that's hoping that this chapter will speak to us. And so I'm going to pray that God will do that through His Word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in Your mighty power, through what You've promised to do when You said that no word will return to You empty, Father God, will you please speak powerfully through my words so that what we read here will come alive to us and what we read here will speak to us so that what we expect of following Jesus and living for him might be exactly what you said. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're following on your outlines, you'll see three points. Uh, mission begins, mission DNA, and what do you expect? Um, 
Let me just recap. Last week was really, if you were here with us, we've been preaching through the book of Acts, and it's last week is the big watershed moment, the big turning point, not just in terms of the book, but in terms of the history of God's dealings with humanity. Last week we saw that Cornelius and his whole household, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, his whole household get converted. They become followers of Jesus, but the key is that they're not Jews. And the fact is they could get full access and full membership as God's peoples, as non-Jews, as Gentiles, without having to become a Jew first. That is absolutely a turning point in the book of Acts, but also in the whole history of the Bible and God's dealings with humanity. And so very soon after that episode, really at the end of the, the chapter where Cornelius comes to know Jesus, the church gets international. In the second half of Acts 11, which is partly the name Acts 11 where we got the name from, um, the first international church in the history of the world happens in a city called Antioch. And then here... Uh, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, at the beginning of 13, it's that church in Antioch, that international church, that now commissions the first ever missionaries. And who are they? Well, it's Paul. We met him earlier as Saul, who gets converted as an enemy of Christianity. He gets converted a couple of sermons ago in chapter, in chapter 9. But he now is called Paul because of his missionary work among Gentiles. And it's Paul and Barnabas they get commissioned by this church in Antioch to now go into all the world. Now, if you like watching trilogies, yeah, you know, trilogies, movies that come in three parts, we are now in episode two of the trilogy. If you like to think of Acts as a trilogy, this is now the second major part as the gospel goes out into the world. So I'm going to show you a map. And this is where Paul and Barnabas are going to go. Where's my map? Okay, there's no map. Um, I think that was my mistake, not yours. I think I forgot to put the map on. Um, okay, uh, if you have a map on the uh, back of your Bibles, uh, you will see the Mediterranean. And what they're going to do is they will first go to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, which is Barnabas's hometown. And then they're going to go from there. This is all chapter 13. They're going to go from there to Antioch, but it's a different Antioch. So the Antioch here is um, in modern Turkey, a little bit up further from the Antioch that sends them. There's two Antiochs, quite confusing. The Antioch that sends them is called the Antioch in Syria. The Antioch that they next go to is Antioch called Pisidian Antioch in Pisidia. And then most of Acts chapter 13 is devoted to Paul's speech in that second Antioch. And then what happens there as a result Now, the key, we we won't go through Acts 13 in detail. We're just going to focus on 14. But the key of chapter 13 is you're beginning to see a pattern that carries through to chapter 14. And that is Paul's pattern of ministry and also the response. So this happens first in Antioch. They would go and first preach to Jews in the synagogues. But then the message would be rejected by the Jews. They don't want anything to do with Jesus which then leads them to preach outside of the synagogues to non-Jews, to Gentiles, who were much more receptive. And that would be the pattern. Now, all of that would be well and good. You know, the Jews didn't want it, the Gentiles wanted it, so we'll just go to Gentiles. All of that would be well and good, except that the Jews who refused to believe would then stir up opposition and trouble for them among the Gentiles. Now, you saw that in the first stop in chapter 14. Let's read those verses again, chapter 14, verse 1. So the next stop they go to 
is Iconium, still around modern Turkey. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. That's great, but look at this. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then as we read earlier, what would happen is these group of hostile Jews would follow them, essentially. They're going to go from Iconium to Lystra, Lystra to Derby. Well, these Jews are very determined. They'll chase them, all right, until they succeed in almost killing Paul, we read earlier in Derby. But we'll come to that a little bit later. But for now, I want to focus on point number two of your outlines, which is their mission DNA. Let's think about what are the kind of characteristics of what they did in Acts 14. Now, remember, we're asking the question, how does that and what they did shape the question of what do we expect? So we're still thinking about that question. So point number two, there's three characteristics of their mission. Now, it's a really clever way that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, the historian Luke, has written it. Because each one of these points or characteristics, you're going to see parallels another character that we've already met in the book of Acts. And particularly, it's going to parallel or contrast Paul as the main missionary with a character. Each point will have a different character. We'll come to that in a moment so you'll know what I mean. But firstly, powerful. First point is their ministry, Paul's ministry, was powerful. Now, you see that in verse 3, don't you? Have a look again there. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And if you're wondering what that means, well, we saw an example of that, verses 8 to 10. When they reached the city of Lystra, have a look at verse 8 again. In Lystra, they sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Right, that is an astonishing healing miracle, isn't it? And even in Acts, this is not something that happens every day. In fact, it's something that's happened only once before in this detail. Because it's supposed to remind us of another healing in Acts. And here's the first parallel character. Remember I said each characteristic parallels a character. Here Paul is paralleled with the person who performed the healing earlier in Acts chapter 3, and it's the apostle Peter. See, in Acts chapter 3, we didn't actually preach through this, but if you know the story, Peter and John go to the temple to pray. And we've got the same situation. A lame man, lame from birth, was sitting there. And you even get the similar actions, even the similar language. Peter also is said in chapter 3 to look directly at the lame man before commanding him to stand and walk. And the result is, of course, exactly the same. He not only jumps, uh, he not only stands and is able to walk, but in both accounts, the lame men are said to be jumping. Right? The leaping, jumping word is used in Acts only of these two healings. You see, there's a deliberate, deliberate parallel. Paul, Peter. See, what it's doing is not just telling us that Paul's words and deeds were powerful, which they certainly are, but that Paul, like Peter, also has God's stamp of approval as an apostle, a specially commissioned, authoritative messenger from Jesus. See, Peter is the great lead apostle, particularly to the mission among the Jews, 
But now we see Paul has a stamp, the mark of the great apostle to the Gentiles. So this is a unique marking out of Paul. That's why this act was so powerful. That's why Paul could perform signs and wonders. Now, bring it back a bit. I want to use this as an opportunity to say, because there are churches and there are leaders that claim that signs and wonders, miraculous signs and wonders like this, must happen every time we preach the gospel and do evangelism. And we'll use passages like this. You see, this is what happens with Paul, happened with Peter. Therefore, you can't do evangelism without signs and wonders. Now, I think when we see this in context, hopefully just even from what I've said, you'll be able to make you a little bit more careful about using that language loosely or the expectations loosely. Now, please do not hear me say that God can't perform miracles and really amazing healing miracles. He does, and He still does. And He does it at times to confirm the testimony of the gospel, but He also does it at times because He wants to heal people miraculously. But I think what we need to be careful to do is not to say that it is a must for mission and ministry. Do you know what I'm saying? Because these movements, these churches, these leaders will say it must accompany evangelism. And so the focus is on signs and wonders. And every Christian should be able to perform signs and wonders in order to preach the gospel. I think that's wrong. See, even the term signs and wonders in the Bible doesn't refer to all miracles but particularly those that cluster around key moments of salvation history, key moments of God's dealings with humanity, which are moments like these. As I said, these are unique history-turning events when the gospel is actually going out into new territory, when a guy like Paul is going to be confirmed as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's unique. These mark those special moments out. And even in Paul's ministry, the power of God, you'll see, lies primarily not in the performing of signs and wonders. Even though he did all those signs and wonders, the power of God, you will see, is primarily in the Word of God that he preaches. You see, the miracles don't convert anyone. That example in Lystra is a clear example. We don't know what happened to the lame man. We hope the best that he does get converted. But you see what happens the Gentiles in Lystra who witnessed the miracle actually totally miss the point, don't they? They try to worship Paul. They don't turn to Jesus on the whole, at least not recorded there. The power of God is primarily in the preached Word of God, and as we've seen in the book of Acts, in the unstoppable Word going forward. So don't feel like, if I don't have the miracles and signs and wonders individually as a church, I don't have the power. No, no, no. See, what you do have is the same powerful Word of God, the same unstoppable Word. In a couple of weeks' time at the Rice Rally, thousands of youth, we pray, will hear the Word of God. Every year we see God change hundreds of youth. We haven't, in my memory of the last 10 or 15 years of Rice, we've never seen any healing miracles happen, but we've seen the Word go out And people's lives change because the word is the power of God. You have that. And you ought to expect that. I expect that people will be converted in two weeks' time. And I expect that as we put the word out there in our church in August, in September and October, especially through our mission events, that people will have their lives changed because the word is powerful. 
right? You still have it, you read it, you live it, you share it, you are part of the powerful, unstoppable work of God through His Word. But that's the first one, right? Paul's ministry was powerful, and especially as he parallels Peter in terms of being an apostle. The second one is faithful. Um, as we saw before, this miraculous healing, it causes all sorts of trouble for Paul and Barnabas. Um, pick up from verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple is just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, we do have um, a Latin poet whose name was Ovid. Um, He records a legend of the Roman gods Jupiter and Mercury, who happened to be the gods Zeus and Hermes in the Greek pantheon. Um, And Ovid records that uh, these two gods, Zeus and Hermes, visited that exact region, the Laconian Valley region. But they were disguised as mortals. And only an elderly couple recognized them and welcomed them. And as a result, the elderly couple's house was blessed and they were transformed into a temple and priests of that temple. But those who didn't welcome them were destroyed. That was the legend of that region. So you can imagine why. The crowd, knowing that legend, didn't want to get it wrong this time. So they went all out, didn't they? Now put yourself in the position of Paul and Barnabas. If you've ever been lured by the prospect of fame and applause, I mean, this is a real temptation, right? They're going to worship you. But if you've been reading the book of Acts, then you would have read only two chapters earlier. We didn't preach on this. I spoke about it at um, prayer meeting. But we read this about another character. Here's another parallel, but this is not a parallel. It's, It's actually a contrast. King Herod, we meet in chapter 12. If you have a a quick flipper, just go back a couple of pages. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. King Herod, who's a baddie, he's a great persecutor of Christians in Acts chapter 12. Look what happens to him in Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Same sort of thing's happening. They want to worship him. Verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was in by worms and died. All right, that's not so good. But you see here, the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas, these men of God, is contrasted with Herod, who we just met a couple of chapters earlier. So what do they do? Paul and Barnabas, well, they immediately rip their clothes as a sign that what the crowds were doing was blasphemy. That's what... Ripping your clothes means blasphemy, right? It's an insult to God. Then Paul is going to give his first recorded speech to Gentiles. Now, we won't read it again, but remember when we read it, he's essentially saying, guys, we're only human, just like you. And in fact, God sends us with a message to tell you to repent and turn away from stupid things like this worshiping other gods. Okay, that's his message. He very, very clearly says, Right? Don't worship us. Only worship God, the true and living God. In the Old Testament, if you know the story of the judges, there's a famous leader of God's people, a judge called Gideon. If you don't know the story, don't worry. But essentially, Gideon was faced with a similar choice. He rescues God's people, and the people wanted to idolize Gideon. He was the hero, after all. He saves them. 
Now, rightly, Gideon says, no, don't worship me, don't idolize me. If that was all, though, that would have been okay. If you know the story, what Gideon then thinks is, okay, I don't want them to worship me, that would be blasphemy, but I might as well get some of the glory. So what does he do? He makes the people a ceremonial garment out of gold, and he allows them to worship that instead. The gold represented him, the garment represented him. And then he sets up his own sons like a dynasty of leaders, almost like kings. You see what Gideon did there? It would have been so tempting for Paul and Barnabas to do that at least, to compromise just a little bit. All right, we don't want to take the glory of being God, but can't we just take some of the glory? I mean, come on, we're we're God's appointed, miracle-working, powerful messengers. At least take some of the glory, right? God won't mind if we just, you know, get the little trimmings at the end. Sometimes um, I look at the ministries and profiles of the leaders, Christian ones, preachers, pastors that we look up to. And I do wonder sometimes, are they more like Gideon or like Paul? Paul who says, absolutely not. Or Gideon who says, yeah, worship God, but hey, look at us too. Now, I could just point the finger at them, but you know what? That's my temptation. I look at my own heart and I say, what do I do in their position if I have tens of thousands of followers who actually hang on my every word? Won't I want to take some of the glory? I'm thankful I'm not in that position. But you see, Paul instead was faithful. Like he knew he was only a messenger. And he, like John the Baptist, you know John the Baptist? Right, big celebrity in his day. But John the Baptist was faithful. Only said, says, Look at Jesus. Look at the Son of God. He's the one, not me. I'm not even worthy to untie the shoelaces on his sandals. He only wants people to see Jesus. That's Paul's faithfulness. And I wonder if you're like that. If all your desire is to point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus. And the more that you're a leader in the Christian church, the more that people look up to you, the more that you have a teaching position, upfront position, maybe in the music team, the easier it is to, to want some of the skimmings of the glory, the afterglow to go to you. And I wonder, friends, are you as passionate about being faithful to point to Jesus as Paul was? This third thing, persevering. After nearly being made gods, things escalate pretty quickly in the other direction. Verse 19, have a look there. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, told you, they're chasing him, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, these Jews, I mean, just think, how wicked are these Jews? I mean, they wanted to stone him back in Iconium, but they found out, so he got away. So they chase him here. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of kilometers away before the days of cars. They chase him there and succeed. And no, how do they succeed? They team up with the crowds. They team up with the Gentiles to try to kill Paul. You think about that for a moment. How do Orthodox God-worshipping Jews team up with idol-worshipping Gentiles and win them over? Right? What they would have needed to say to convince Gentiles, idol-worshippers, to turn against Paul. Obviously, the argument, we want Paul not to speak about Jesus because he threatens Judaism. That argument's not going to work, is it? 
These guys don't care about Judaism. They're idol worshippers. What would they have had to say? I don't know what they said to convince the Gentiles, but they would have totally had to compromise, yeah? They would have firstly had to compromise their principles of being Jews who didn't work with Gentiles. That was one of the things. Jews and Gentiles, as I said a couple of weeks ago, completely divided. Well, they're willing to compromise that. Probably willing to compromise the message of being worshippers of one God in order to talk these worshippers of many gods into teaming up against Paul. Do you see? They are a contrast to Paul's faithfulness. Paul testifies to the true and living God. You can bet these Jews weren't so faithful. But of course, the crowds, the Gentile crowds themselves, I mean, pretty fickle, right? Same crowds that wanted to worship them now turn against them pretty quickly. And so here we've got another parallel character, and this is not a hard one to, to, to see. Another faithful witness in Acts, another faithful witness who gets stoned back in chapter 7 is Stephen. Now here you've got quite a little bit of irony happening because back when Stephen gets killed, and by the way, stoning is not getting high on certain type of drugs, okay? It's a cruel form of execution. It still happens in some... Um, fundamentalist Muslim countries today. And we're not talking about little pebbles, okay? They hurt when you get pegged with them. We're talking about rocks, sometimes boulders, just people coming and just dropping it on you. It's pretty horrible. But you get a bit of irony because back when Stephen was stoned in chapter 7, guess who was giving his approval for Stephen to get killed? It was Saul, Paul, before he came to know Jesus. Now he's being parallel to Stephen. But he's now on the receiving end. And so above all, this chapter is about Paul and Barnabas' perseverance, their determination in the face of this kind of opposition near death. I think Christians do get a lot of flack nowadays, especially in the media. I know a pastor in Tasmania, his name's Campbell Markham, and um, I do know him personally. He's currently going to get brought up um, against human, you know, kind of... um, I think human rights violations, because one of his sermons uh, spoke against probably same-sex marriage. Um, now, that's, that's, yeah, that's tough, right? But it was good to hear Campbell Markham on the Bolt Report, because Andrew Bolt was like, you know, a Christian's getting persecuted, and, and Campbell's like, well, persecution's too strong of a word. And he's right. We're getting a lot of flack. It is a persecution of sorts, but it's nothing like what some Christians are getting in Syria and Iraq today. They're getting their lives taken away from them. This is the kind of opposition that Paul and Barnabas face, the kind of suffering. But you see, they're persevering through it, even through the possibility of death. I think Paul is not like a soccer player. Yeah? Football players, soccer players. Paul is much more like a cyclist. This is dear to my heart. So now I'll show you this picture again. Soccer players pretends he's injured, but he's not. Cyclists, after crashes like that, will pretend they're okay and just keep going. In the recent Tour de France, one of the competitors called Dan Martin, on stage 9 of 21, okay, so he's not even halfway through the tour. On stage 9, he has a horrible crash. He basically gets wiped out by another guy who crashes, hits the side of a mountain, He fractures his spine. He can barely stand or walk, but guess what? He finishes the Tour de France, another two and a half thousand kilometers, and he comes sixth. 
can't imagine soccer players doing that, right? They get tripped over and they're like, oh gosh, I'm so hurt. Paul is not a soccer player. He is like a Tour de France cyclist. He will just keep on soldiering on in spite of opposition and suffering. Um, Did you notice back in verses 2 and 3, let's read those verses again. There's a word there, just a single word that's sort of out of place if you take the time to notice it. Verse 2, remember, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. What's the word that's out of place there? Genuine question. It's a tiny little word. Begins with S, ends in O. Oh, it's so. I'm glad you noticed. Um, Verse 3, so, or therefore. Why is that out of place? It's totally out of place, right? Because verse 2 has just said, they're copying lots of opposition. And verse 3 says, they preach the word boldly. They're copying opposition. So, therefore, they're going to preach the word even more. That, That makes no sense, does it? Right? Opposition for them is not a hindrance. It's a sign that they, it should be a sign that they stop speaking, but they see it as a sign that they've got to speak more. That's so weird. But that's exactly it. And then later, okay, after nearly getting killed in Lystra, right, he's left for dead. He gets stones chucked at him. They think he's dead, so he must have been barely breathing. If not breathe, maybe he was in a coma at least. Gets dragged out of the city, left for dead. After nearly dying, they go to Derby. Then verse 21, read this. Verse 21, skip down to the end. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Where do they return to? They return to the very cities and the very regions they'd been chased by the Jews and nearly died in. You'd think they would think, oh, okay, we're going to change our itinerary now. We're going to go back via a different route, maybe a safer route because those crazy Jews are chased. No, no, no. They go back. Why? Because they had a job to do. The new churches and the believers needed their help, so they're like, whatever, we're just going to keep going. Do you see? That is perseverance. Here is where we come into the story. Point number three. Remember, I started by asking you the question, what to expect? In the Christian life, and tied up with it, if you're a follower of Jesus, what it means for you to serve Jesus in your ministry and mission. And notice their words that we read again in verse 22. They say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What do you expect? You see, these words take hardships out of the unique experiences of Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they have it tougher than most people will ever. But it takes it out of just their experience. And it says, hey, that's us too. All of our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, Paul is saying, expect hardship. Expect suffering. Expect difficulty. Not just when you're trying to share the faith with others or standing up for Jesus. That's certainly the case, like with my friend Campbell in Tasmania. But expect it just because you are a follower of Jesus. Expect hardship. Paul will later write in 2 Timothy 3.12, he'll say, everyone who wants to live a godly life 
that everyone, hopefully, will want to live a godly life. If you follow Jesus and you want to live a godly life, he says, you will be persecuted. Hardships for the Christian will be external, will be internal, and will be supernatural. External, internal, supernatural. External, like persecution, like abuse, like ridicule in the media, but it may be even illness. It's part of living in a fallen world. But hardship will also be internal. It'll be temptation and sin. It'll be discouragement and depression. It'll be fear and anxiety. But it'll also be supernatural. It can be overt, supernatural, spiritual, demonic attacks, intimidation. A lot of Christians on the front line of ministry, my mate Steve Chong, who's going to preach at... um, Rice rally in a couple of weeks' time, around this time of the year, he always gets, always gets a big target on his back. He always feels spiritually attacked. So please pray for him. But it can be overt, but it can be subtle as well. Satan undermining your assurance. Satan working to tempt you in different ways. External, internal, supernatural hardships. In other words, world, flesh, devil, if you want to think about it that way. Now, some of you know this very well as a follower of Jesus. Some of you are right now finding it so hard in the midst of all these hardships to remain faithful, to persevere. And whether it's in your ministry or mission to others or even just in your Christian walk, you know what it is to be experiencing hardship. And if you don't, it's coming. Now, if you are experiencing hardships, I want to say to you two things. You need to know two things. Number one, it's what you ought to expect, all right? Remember expectations. It's what you ought to expect. Jesus said as much. He said following him is denying yourself, taking up your cross, essentially being willing to die. One Peter says, have a look here, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see that? Do not be surprised. Sometimes we whinge and complain about the hardships as if God has sold us a lemon. Oh, I thought following Jesus was going to be easy. No, 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 God never said that. So don't be surprised. And that's what's so poisonous about the prosperity gospel, isn't it? It's promising you a false gospel. But that's the first thing. So that's the first thing. Don't be surprised. It's what you already expect. But secondly, it's worth it, right? If you are struggling with this one, I want you to know it's worth it. God wants you to know it's worth it. Hardships are on the way to entering the kingdom of God, says verse 22. And the second part of 1 Peter 4, but rejoice, it says, verse 13, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, I know the two things there. Number one, the sufferings of Christ. That is, Jesus has gone before us. Everything the world, the flesh, and the devil throws at you, it's already thrown at Jesus first and more. So never think he doesn't understand. He totally does. And his suffering and death, mind you, makes it possible for our suffering and death not to be ultimately scary. No matter what happens to you, right? you don't have to be scared. Why? Because he died for our sins in our place. He already went to hell and rose from the dead to dead to conquer death. So you and I will never 
suffer in a way to separate us from the love of God in Christ, says the Bible. No matter what you go through, Jesus has secured your eternity because he suffered. So that's the first thing, Christ's sufferings. The second thing you'll notice in 1 Peter 4 is joy, right? Abundant, overflowing joy when his glory is revealed. You suffer now with Christ, you share in his joy in the future when he comes in glory. And it will be worth it, says the Bible. It will be worth it. Our family's been reading through a book, uh, a children's version of The Pilgrim's Progress. The picture book version is called Dangerous Journey, but it's basically Pilgrim's Progress, which I think is one of the most widely read books outside of the Bible. And it was written in the 16th century, or the 17th century, by a guy called John Bunyan, and it's a classic. And in it, it's an allegory. So he, he writes as if it's a dream, and every part of that dream has a, a parallel. It's a great book because it parallels the Christian journey. Right? And it starts off with a, a guy in his dream called Christian, who is living in the city of destruction. He has a huge burden on his back, represented by sin. And he's the only one in his city who knows that he must leave the city of destruction to head to Zion, the heavenly city. And it's about his journey there. We'll be reading it with our kids. It's been pictures and it's really great. But let me tell you about one stage of this journey. After Christian goes up the hill called Difficulty, and he's doing it on his hands and knees, and it's getting really hard. But he finally ascends the hill called Difficulty. But then he sees two men running towards him in the opposite direction, away from the city of um, the, the heavenly city and back towards the city of destruction. And, he, and Christians obviously like, why are you doing it? You're going the wrong way. One of the men answers, we were going to the city of Zion, but the further we went, the more difficulty we face. The other man says, yeah, and there are vicious lions up ahead. Lions that are threatening to tear you apart to pieces. Now, Christian has just been up the hill difficulty. He's just had a pretty rough time. You can imagine that he'd be wanting to give up too. But then this is what he says. He says to them, You make me afraid, but where shall I run to to be safe? If I go back to my own country, that is prepared for fire and brimstone. And I shall certainly perish there. If I can get to the celestial city, I am sure to be in safety there. I must venture. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death, but life everlasting beyond it. So I will yet go forward. That is the journey marked out for every follower of Jesus. The details will be different, but expect that along the way, you're going to meet hardships, some of us really significant hardships. But take heart, because it's worth it. Let's pray. Father God, I pray and commit to you every single person here who especially feels the weight, the weight of difficulty and hardship in their own Christian walk, in their ministry to others. Father, would you encourage them, firstly, with the right expectations, but secondly, with the comfort that comes from knowing you. And the comfort that comes to know that no matter how depressing and dark it feels now, the light is coming and it's Jesus' return. So help them to persevere, I pray. Amen.